dressed like like Boo from Monsters Inc. But just <laughs> but just with Timothy Chalamet's head. That's actually not that far off from <laughs> I think how the eventual worm god is described. Welcome to All My Friends Are English Majors, the podcast where I, business major, make my friends, almost all English majors, read popular fiction with me. This month is Dune Month. Sam and I are reading Dune by Frank Herbert. My boyfriend Sam is here. Hi, Sam. Hello. I am not an English major. That hasn't changed since the last time I was on. You are a man in STEM. Yes. And not the way that I am a woman in STEM. You're a woman in STEMs. I... That S stands for science, Sam. I know, but it's it's cuter when it's like plant stems. Yeah, okay. Okay. You're not doing that to take away my title as a woman in STEM? No. Okay. All right. We are not going to read the back of the book. We did that last time. And we are not going to do a two-minute summary because this book has a fuck ton going on in it. We're doing the whole episode summary style. Yeah. Because none of you are ever writing any reviews, so we don't know if you liked last week's episode, so we just have to go with it. Also, so much happens in Dune that, like, if we don't do it this way, you're just going to hear me say, and then, and then go off on another tangent again. Yeah, and it's tough for us to even cut, like, any of the chapters or plot points because, like, pretty much everything that happens has bearing on something else that's going to happen. In this book specifically, or is Frank Herbert setting up, like, Dune Messiah in any of this? I think he might have been setting up Dune Messiah. I'm not really sure that he, like, knew how how big the plan was at this point. Like, did he know he was going to write several books after this? I find that hard to believe, but I you can kind of see the seeds for, for Dune Messiah in this. Or if not, he just continues exploring the same themes that he's setting up in this one. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. What what would you see the say the main theme of part two of Dune is? Uh so I think part one is all about Paul is having a very bad time. I think nothing good happens to Paul in the first part of the book. And in the second part of the book, things are still he's not having a good time. But things are not going so bad. Like, he, you know, at one point his mom is, like, lost in a a landslide, essentially, and he's able to save her. And, like, part one, what's going on to Paul? Something like that would happen, and it'd just be like, oh, she's dead now. Yeah, that's fair. I guess also thematically, like, I'm thinking, like, we see a lot more of the environmentalism pop up. That we, like, get the seeds of in part one, but, like, part two, we're introduced to, like, how they are going to essentially terraform the planet. Yeah, and and in, like, part one, it's kind of led on by by kinds, especially in the dinner scene, like, yeah, the Fremen dream of the planet is to, like, make it habitable and not suck so bad uh, climate-wise. And then in part two, we see... um, how that desire kind of manifests among the Fremen and like what they're doing about it. Yeah. I think 
which we can talk about this when we get there to the like water plan and the the plants plan but like they literally are just like we are gonna grow native grasses like we're gonna establish essentially prairies which have big strong roots which make erosion happen less and what is sand doing if not just like it's cool it's a cool idea and the technology they have to like add more water to the planet with like the little like dew pockets they put in around every single plant that they've planted in the desert thus far that's so cool were you kind of taken in by the plant parts of this book? I was a little bit. Okay. Which, like, is unsurprising, given every single thing about me. It does make sense. But, like, I also think I was taken in a little bit just by, like... <clears throat> like, I think on planet Earth, we have kind of forgotten how cool it is to, like, live on a planet that is, like, generally pretty hospitable to us. Yeah. Okay. And are, like, pretty wasteful in terms of, like, refusing to use renewable energy and, like, just using water the way that we do. And I think... I Sam is looking at me like he wants to laugh at me. I'm not. No. I just... Choose your words wisely. My audience is mostly my female friends. No, I don't know how to word this. Uh... <laughs> And I think the boys who listen would be on my side. No, I, like, agree with you. It's just, um, like, I'd, I guess I didn't have the experience reading this book where I'm like, wow, I'm taking Earth for granted. Well, just, like, we're thinking about sustainable farming practices in terms of, like, how not to exhaust the soil so that we can keep producing out of it. And they are thinking about sustainable farming practices is like as, like, how can we keep, like, a single fucking plant alive in the desert yeah. on its lonesome? So, That's it. So you've been to plant school. I have been I to plant school. I need to hear school. your definitive thought on this. Will their plan work? I feel like their plan will work because I feel like this book doesn't exist if their plan doesn't work. They also, like... It seems as if they think they're going to do everything all at once. Like, they're going to just have, like essentially like a mass event like the same way that like earth had a mass event and the dinosaur died dinosaurs died it seemed like they are talking about like terraforming the planet as like a mass event that they're going to do essentially to get everything to establish why aren't they just chipping away at it like they're planting little plants now why are they not just like starting in a corner and and expanding from there. I don't really understand why it's an all or nothing plan. So they say in the book, um, they know down to like a million deca liters, which I think is just 10 liters. Uh, so, yeah. Anyways, um, and they say they only need to control and terraform like 3% of the planet's surface before the whole process like becomes self-sustaining and will start to terraform more of the planet on its own so like i think that they know how much water they need to start the process and get it in a point where it can't really be stopped mm. because i think that if they tried to just start terraforming slowly either the planet would be too harsh and like those efforts would would be wasted or 
um, some off-world power, whether that's like the Harkonnens in charge of, of uh, Arrakis. It's too noticeable. Too noticeable. Before it's at a state where um, they could like risk an attack or something like that and not have it uh, like tip the balance over into this can't be stopped. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. I once again perhaps did not read as closely as Frank Herbert originally intended the text to be read. It's but a, I feel like I'm reading really closely. It's just so dense. It's a very dense book. It's not a book that is written in a way for you just to read it one time. I felt that way specifically with the last chapter in this part. I put this in the outline, but I feel as if I could have read the last chapter of this part of Dune maybe, like, three or four times, and I still would have been, like, peeling back more layers of what I was supposed to understand. I don't think that reading Dune feels like reading a textbook. That is not what I'm saying. But you know, in high school, the first time that you, like, move to an upper-level class... And you're like, oh, holy shit. Like, there's a lot of information to take in here. And suddenly, like, all your readings take longer. And, like, comprehending the material takes longer. I think that's kind of where I'm at with the really dense parts of Dune. Is I'm like, oh. Like, I really need to be, like, taking this in. And I, that's not how I read when I'm reading popular fiction, so, like, foul on me. But, like, I feel like I'm trying to read Dune like that, but I'm so invested in the plot, I want to know what's going to happen next, that I, like, also can't convince myself to slow down. Yeah, I think that Frank Herbert tends to write as if you, the reader, know as much as he does about the world and what's going to happen. So, like, I'm reading the book for a second time and a lot of these things just kind of make sense because it's like you're it's it's like you're shown like some sort of math equation mm-hmm. that you don't know how to solve yet and he just like shows it to you and is like this is what's happening and you're like and that's the answer and you're like well okay like I don't understand this yet or like maybe I don't have all the pieces to it but I can kind of understand like the context around it I'm like starting to piece things together. And then as you read more of the book, you start to understand more of these things. You figure out how am I going to solve these literary equations or whatever. And then you read it again and it's like, oh, well, I know all of this already. Like even in the first part, he tells you everything that's going to happen. And then you read about it and it's interesting. Like reading it again, because that's the way that he writes in that like, He's not going to hold your hand through it. You know, some of the stuff he just like assumes that you kind of know, even if you don't, especially as a first time reader. Um, I think it really makes it rereadable and makes it memorable, all these pieces. I also think that he has managed to do something that I think is really important in fantasy as well. And I think I've talked about this. I don't think Betsy and I talked about this on Jane Eyre Month, but we have off mic talked about this many times. Fantasy worlds, sci-fi worlds still have to be recognizable. Like, the main characters are speaking English. His name is Paul. His name is Paul. His mother's name is Jessica. Jessica. But also, like, 
thopter ends in the same way that helicopter ends. Mm -hmm. Like, you know what you're supposed to be picturing. Like, Frank Herbert doesn't spend a page and a half describing what a thopter is. Like, you see thopter, you know they're flying in it. You can kind of picture what it is. Yeah. Like, like you have to have touchstones to real life in your sci-fi mm-hmm. or your fantasy. And as much as he's writing, like, a really dense piece of fiction, it's accessible. Yeah, he he ties a lot of it back to just, like, actual human history. Like, every now and then you see a word that, like, Oh, that that's from us. Well, it's a Messiah story also. Yeah, yeah. Which, like, we've been reading those for a long-ass time. But, like, the Atreides are Greek. I don't know if it's revealed in this book. But, like, they're just from, from Greece. Like, the line goes back that far. Well, and, like, I think that this is also a book that, like, really... Uh, I wish that binge mode was still happening... And we could listen to Binge Mode Dune. That would be so good. Sam does not like Binge Mode. I think that the research that they do is really excellent on that show. And I think, oh my god. If y'all could see Sam's face at the moment, he is looking deeply uncomfortable with the idea of a podcast that I really love doing a deep dive on Dune. But I... No, that's not... That's not it. I just have, I have some specific thoughts about podcasts like that. And I was thinking about it and like, they might also apply to this podcast. So, so you're keeping your, your lips zipped. I find it hard to listen to podcasts about media that I haven't consumed. And I don't don't. think, yeah, like if I had to listen, like, Oh man, I think I was on like a road trip once for Frisbee and we listened to a binge mode episode about like some marvel movie that i hadn't seen before and it was just so bad yeah but that was that was when you were in your i'm not answering emily's texts for 45 minutes era i was probably driving no you weren't oh okay you were texting me during the podcast specifically because you didn't want to listen to the podcast you did not (laughs) want to be i could always tell when you were stuck doing it so when sam and i first started dating I thought he was just a bad texture. I was like, it's okay. And I started texting back faster because I was like, I'm going to catch him with his phone in his hand. (laughs) And then I was over at his apartment one night and his mom is texting him and it's buzzing his watch and he is answering within seconds. Like he's texting his mom back right away. Yeah, that's my mom. Jesus Christ, Sam. And we we had a conversation. <laughs> and then he started texting back faster. But previous to that, I could always tell when you were doing something or you were stuck in a car and you weren't driving. Because it was the only time that you would text back quickly. Because you were, like, stuck in a car listening to something you didn't want to listen to with people you, like, didn't want to talk to because you weren't liking the podcast they were all listening to and then you would be like oh my god i'll text emily back really quickly i just don't like texting that much so you really just text me a lot because you love me pretty much yeah hell yeah okay summary speaking of thopters paul and (laughs) jessica wake up in the tent and the harkonnens are after them 
Paul, I, Paul leaves the tent through what? Through the, the sphincter. The tent sphincter. They call it the tent sphincter. I have things to say about this. I know that I just praised Frank Herbert for writing accessible sci-fi. I don't care how evocative it is for him to call the tense exit hole a sphincter. I don't, I don't give, I don't care that it makes me understand what the tent is shaped like. I don't understand how this isn't accessible. It is accessible. Oh, okay. However, sci-fi is not allowed to get away with saying shit like this just because it's evocative. I think it's to specifically point out that it's airtight. Just say that he broke some sort of seal. But it's it's not really a seal. It could have been. It forms a seal. It's a sphincter. He says sphincter and you know exactly what it is. You're like, wow, this is... What a harsh world, Arrakis, they're now stuck on where they have to use words like sphincter every now and then. Where they have to... Where the only way to be safe is to be in a tent that has a butthole you have to exit through. Yeah. Polytreaties. What a harsh environment. I just think I just think that sci-fi has some things that it needs to answer for. And this is one of them. Like, we don't have to call things a sphincter just to be evocative. We can agree to disagree on this one. Frank Herbert, no foul. I'm making the call. Men shouldn't be allowed to speak on this podcast. Okay, the next thing that happens... Is that um, Thufir Hawat is in a cage. We we exit Paul and Jessica. There's a lot of... He's in a cage? He's in a cave with the okay. Fremen. Okay. He's in a cave with the Fremen and is, like, having a weird time. Because this Fremen is, like, speaking. Is <laughs> Sam's trying not to sneeze. Um, the... The Fremen is being like, okay, like, your guys who are going to die, like, we need to, like, kill them and reclaim their water. Which, like, are they stealing their blood? Is there water and blood? Yeah. Then yeah. Okay. The flesh belongs to the person, the water belongs to the tribe. Yeah, which we, which this Fremen that he's talking to says a lot. But you can kind of tell that the Fremen understands that Thufir Hawat doesn't understand and is just being like, come on, get with the, like, he's stirring, he's stirring the pot a little bit. A little bit, yeah. But also, he's kind of like, you need to, I, a lot of part two, I think, is about accepting the realities of Arrakis. Yes, and Thufir is not understanding. You know, he's realizing that the way that the Fremen think about water is just, like, so different from how he's ever considered it. It's, like, more important than anything he's ever known. And he's kind of coming to grips with that. Uh, and not doing a great job. No, he's pretty slow on the uptake for a supercomputer with this specific problem. Yeah, he's a little too logical. Um, but, yeah, he gets he gets captured by the Harkonnens at the end of that chapter. However, you're skipping something important, which is that he sees the Fremen fight the Sardaukar. Mm-hmm. And the Fremen cook them. Yeah. I mean, they they win a fight against the Emperor's Imperial Troopers, like, unflinchingly and with no losses on the yeah. ground. And then they get a really big ship, and then a bad shit happens. Well, there's a really big ship, 
of Sardaukar. And then there's like a suicide bomb attack from one of the Fremen and yeah. Ornithopter. And Hawat's like, oh my god, they're like fanatical. Like, Duke Atreides was right. Like, you get these guys fighting for us. You know, we we'll win never, every time. We'll never be in danger again. I have questions about that. Okay. So, the Fremen are a tribal culture. So, lots of different little sieges. Mm-hmm. They don't fight each other, though. I think it's implied that they do. But they're also all working together as a full society to collect that 3% of water. Yeah, I mean, they are like a fanatically religious group. Which is why Jessica is able to do the manipulation that she is. Yeah, because the the religious aspect of it, or at least the, the prophecy parts of it, were set up by a Bene Gesserit who previously was on the planet a really long time ago. Um, but like, there's a part later on when they're shown the, the water reservoir in one of the caves, and Stilgar's like, a Fremen would die of thirst before they think about taking water from here. So like, yeah, they might be like warring against each other. I think that's kind of the implication with like, how they're fighting because obviously they've been fighting the Harkonnens, but there are Fremen that live in the deep desert where the Harkonnen don't really go, but they're still really good fighters. And it's just because a Frank Herbert's like the more harsh of an environment people live in, the better they are at fighting because they have to like essentially fight for their lives every day. And, um, you know, I forget the second part that I was going to say, but, I love to do a first of all. Yeah. That's all. Two things. One thing. Okay. Cool. <laughs> okay. So now we go back to Paul and Jessica. Duncan Idaho comes and gets them and they go to Kynes' research base. And then they're found by the Harkonnens. And they kill Duncan Idaho. Jason never, Momoa. They'll never be seen in the series again. Sam is lying. Duncan Idaho gets cloned a bunch of times and becomes a sex god. Starting in book two, Duncan Idaho is like the main character for like the next five books. Doesn't Paul like become a worm in one of those books? No. I've been picturing him um, dressed like like Boo from Monsters, Inc. But just, <laughs> but just with Timothy Chalamet's head. That's actually not that far off from i think how the eventual worm god is described i won't spoil it maybe you'll want to read the dune books through i would recommend through book four okay if you want to they get a little weird but (laughs) paul does not become a worm okay i'll say that so they go to the research base kynes helps them escape duncan idaho holds the line he remembers the alamo he stops them for as long as he can but eventually dies Mm mm-hmm um, and then Kynes breaks off with them, and Paul and Jessica take a thopter, and they fly into a sandstorm. Yeah. And this is the point at which Baron Harkonnen and the rest of the world begins to believe that Paul and Jessica have died. Yeah, because it's not really believed by anyone except for the Fremen that you could fly into a storm and live. But they know that if they fly high enough up, they have a chance. And Paul's having like 
his prescient visions the whole time and is essentially just like i need to just like go with the storm yeah he goes with the storm he uses his bene Gesserit, like training to be the calmest person in the whole world and he also kind of just lets the visions wash over him of like what he's supposed to do yeah he gets yeah it's actually really cool and it's extremely cool in the movie yeah for sure like this is one of those scenes that i was reading in the book and i was like oh this part's fucking sick i remember this yeah so they fly into the storm oh we should say something about what paul has been seeing so like oh yeah yeah, every pretty much every time that paul is in a chapter of part two and he has any sort of like internal monologue or like small prescient vision it always includes like the eventual jihad in his name like sweeping across the universe and that starts essentially with the the uh the tent so you've told me that dune is a self-contained story yes we're going to see a full universe battle in the last 200 pages of this book. I'm not going to spoil any of that. I just am having a really difficult time believing that this story is self-contained. I mean, not all aspects of it. Okay. But but the Okay, I'll just read. I'll just read. I can do it. I can be patient. You can read. Um, okay. We go to the Harkonnen planet. Which, hilarious of their main city to be named Harkon. Yeah. That's so funny. I mean, I guess. I just, like, that's, that's, like, um, that's, if that's, like, that's, like, if we name Washington, D.C. after George Washington. That's crazy. <laughs> that's so crazy. Um. But it's more like if. If Washington, D.C. was named that because George Washington named it that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Baron Harkonnen uh, talks to his nephew, Raban. He's like, go back to Arrakis. Squeeze. Squeeze. Income. All we need is money. Like, we don't care how you get it, essentially. Because his plan is that Raban's going to do such a bad job on Arrakis that everyone's going to hate him. And then Fade Roth is going to show up, get rid of Raban, and they're going to be like, Fade Roth, you saved us. Woo-hoo. Something that we need to talk about with the squeezing that we didn't talk about in the Thufir Hawat chapter is Thufir Hawat did not see this coming because he was like, it literally costs too much money to be possible. Yeah. Like, no one would spend this amount of money getting the Atreides off Arrakis. Like, no one would spend this much money on the quote-unquote threat of Duke Leto to the Emperor. Yeah, it was, like, the most expensive thing ever done. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, that is also why he told him to squeeze Arrakis, is because he spent, like, 50 years of profit of spice on a single day. He's got to make his money back. And we actually see this later in the book, in the um, Fade Rotha gladiator chapter, is Fenring and his wife notice the poverty 
outside the Harkonnen compound, essentially, in the city Harkon, they're like, yeah. oh, there's, like, people are poor. People are feeling, essentially, the inflation of all of the money from Spice being gone. Yeah. But also, I don't think people are being treated that well. No. I mean, that slavery is still legal. Yeah. So. And they're still doing, like, gladiatorial fights. Anyway, they escape the storm, and they start traveling the desert. And they find a little cave to stay the night. I um want to say I really like that they can't be out during the day and they just have to, like, walk around at night all the time. I think that's yeah. fun. I think that's, like, a fun little piece of the it's, story. It's fun? No, I mean, obviously it's not fun. Mm. What are they going to do about the heat of the sun? Where's that in their terraforming plan? Uh, I don't know. It's going to be they're hot. Gonna, they're just going to, like, put a little shade cloth up over it? I I don't exactly know that part. Okay. I'm not I'm not the planetary ecologist. So Jessica falls down in the cave and gets trapped in a sandslide. And then Paul saves her, which I think it was big that he saved her also because he's so mad at her. He is. He's like giving birth to me was the worst thing you've ever done. And also, yeah, all of part two. It's about finding more out about the Fremen way of life, and it's also about understanding the, the realities of living on Arrakis. Yeah. And this is a big realities of living on Arrakis. And then his mom slides, and he goes to save her, and he drops the backpack. And he's like, no, I dropped the backpack with our water. But I think, I don't know, I think that that chapter specifically says something about humanity in the way that, like, even when we are... <coughs> So, like, <laughs> can't wait to, I just don't think I can edit that out. Um, anyway, I like the humanity of, like, even when we are so, so, so mad at the people we love in our family, like, you're not gonna let your mom die in a sand slide. Yeah. Like, you're still really in it together. Even though she's, like, trained you to become something that's really not quite human anymore and it's ruining your life. All right, we have to stop. <laughs> Great news, everyone. My neighbor has parked the 30-foot box truck that they have been driving lately. So now there's no more beefing, no more engine running. Well, um, we have a natural stop, so you can put it in an audible commercial into this episode. Should I? Yeah, should I reach out to BetterHelp? Yeah, it's time to monetize. <laughs> um. Anyway, desert bad. Paul saves his mom. Great work. Then we flash away from Paul and Jessica and we go to Gurney Halleck. That's his name, right? It is. Um, And he goes to talk to the smuggler's son and decides to, to work with him. And we don't hear from him for the rest of the book. I can only assume. We don't hear from him for the rest of part two. Right. I can only assume that in part three, he is just like, magically managed to rally the troops and believes in his heart that Paul is still alive. That's what I want. We'll see. I hate your guts. Okay, then Paul and Jessica have to do the weird sand run dance for a long time. The sand walk. Um, And they're really like, this is the most tiring thing I've ever done. Yeah, I mean, have you ever done a, a really silly walk and then had to do it for like four miles? Do we think it was four miles? I think it's like at least two. Does it? You have two miles across the desert here. Um, I got that vibe. Anywhere from like two to four, I think. 
uh, and then yeah, they stumble into some drum sand, uh, make some big booming noises. The worms are attracted to repetitive noises, um, so a worm starts chasing after them. They get like into this crevice of like a rock, and the worm is like kind of it's like almost digging at him, like they can hear it like kind of scraping around the rocks a little bit. So they are probably like mostly safe. Uh, but they hear someone else drop a thumper and attract the worm somewhere else. Uh, and then at the end of this chapter, they like are kind of ambushed by some Fremen who are like, uh, we need your water. Like, I hope you don't fight us and waste it. Um, and then the chapter kind of ends. And they cliffhanger you and they send you to Kynes in the desert. And Kynes is dying in the desert. And at the very end of the chapter, he gets eaten by a worm. No. Yes. Sorry. Yes, he does. He's dying because the Harkonnens found him and they decided not to just like kill him with blades, but just to kind of let him loose in the desert without gear um, and die that way. So he's really thirsty. He's like crawling along the sand. There's a, a pre-spice mass underneath him, which is like when the they call them the little makers. They've like trapped some water and then it expands and it hits some gas and it hits the spice and then um, essentially like creates a whirlpool. Oh, I thought they were referring to the worms as little makers. So there's the makers. That's the, the worm. The worms. And then the little makers. Oh. Which are the reason why like they talk about in part one, like they dig down and they get water for a little bit. And then it's gone. That's the water like trapped by the little makers. It says in the book that it's like they surround like porous rock, essentially, and water gets trapped in it. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot of like ecology stuff in this chapter. But so like the little makers trap water and then eventually it releases like too much gas with the spice and it creates like a whirlpool. And I I don't think he gets eaten by the worm. I'm pretty sure he I'm doesn't. pretty sure he gets eaten by a worm. No, no, no. Because the... Does he get swallowed up by the little maker? And no. I just assumed it was a worm? So, like, when the spice blows, that's how the spice gets from, like, underneath to on top of the sand? Is it basically, like, trades place with places with whatever's on top of the sand? So, you know, there's, like, enough water and gas releasing that he basically sinks... And is trapped by sand that was previously underground. That is so much worse than being eaten by a worm. I mean, is it just suffocating? I feel like getting eaten. I think it, that suffocation is the worst death. Well, so listeners, I'm from Iowa, a place where succumbing to the grain, as it was known, no, is liar. Common, is liar. Succumbing to the the grain. Yeah. That's the first time you've ever heard those words said out loud. I'm not an Iowa anymore. It, it's not a common cause of death here. Uh, so <laughs> basically what happens is uh, if you're in like a grain bin, uh, like where they're drying corn, Emily's just on Instagram. <laughs> I'm, Put seeing that away. It, I'm seeing it. Bailey's posted on Instagram. I already know all about your internship where they made sure that you climbed on no, top of a grain no, silo no, 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 and didn't no, no, want no. you to fall down because you'd suffocate. That's not exactly what happens. All right. And they don't know. 
So anything for the listener. So you put like corn in a big grain bin. They look like big metal silos and you dry it. And then you like empty it through the bottom when it's dry. But Mm -hmm. what can happen is the dry corn at the top can get like kind of moldy and crusty. So when you're on top of the bin, it looks like there's this flat layer of grain. And if you were to step on it, you'd fall through that into more corn. And once you're like in it, you can't get out. It's like quicksand, essentially. Like there's no way to apply force to dig yourself out without like sliding further down. So like people die. They like fall into these these grain bins and they can't be saved. And they just like are crushed and suffocate to death. So like this was a this is a normal aspect of life living there in a corn state. It's just something you had to be aware of. So like death by suffocation seems fairly natural to me. You are stirring shit up. Sam, you do not mean that. Guess the listener will never know. The streets are tough. If this was not an audio medium, if you could see Sam, <laughs> you would know that he is making things up. Anyway, we find out a lot about the ecology of the planet. He's like hallucinating his dad. While he's laying on top of the little maker. Yeah. Who was the imperial ecologist before, before him. And he's, his dad's essentially like, yeah, you know, uh, we're going to make prairies. We're going to have like canals and shit. Like once we hit 3% of the, the planet, the process can't be stopped. And like, you know, uh, the ice caps are melting. So there's like more water released. And then there will just be like a small ring of deep desert around like the equator for the worms. Which you have to have, because you can't have spice without the worms. Yes. They don't really tell you how exactly, but they're tied intrinsically. I'm guessing it is in the Harkonnen's best interest for the planet not to be terraformed. Right. Because they need all that desert to make all that spice. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So, Paul and Jessica get in a fight with the Fremen... Jessica captures Stilgar, who is the main leader of this little band, and Paul kind of, like, kicks this man named Jameis down a little pile of rocks. Yeah. And goes to hide. But everyone knows where he is, because he's not quiet. Yeah, he's very loud. Um, And what I put in the outline was more Bene Gesserit manipulation. Thank you to the Bene Gesserit. The Bene Gesserit are the only reason Paul and Jessica are still alive. Oh, absolutely. And it's because, and it's not just because of the, like, fear is the mind killer, like, calming stuff. Yeah, it's not just because she's, like, a good fighter. It is. like, very aware of, like, people's intentions. Like, she is taking advantage of a prophecy that she knows because it's, like, the standard prophecy that gets delivered to a bunch of these worlds by the Bene Gesserit, like, you know, eons ago. So, are they essentially just, like, lucky that the planets aren't that close to each other and people don't travel between planets that much? Um. Like, because, like, I'm Fremen. I, like, say that being a Fremen is like living in Nevada and being from (laughs) Arrakis is, and being from Caledon is like being from Michigan, the the land of a thousand lakes, right? That's Minnesota. 
why are there so many lakes around Michigan then? It's literally split by lakes. But there's not that many great lakes. Minnesota has a lot of small lakes. Some some people that We're getting off topic. Might not even call all of them lakes, if we're being real. We're getting off topic. What I have to say is if I could fly from Nevada to Minnesota easy... Caledon and... is more like the, Car- the Carolinas. It's more of a swamp. Okay, I fly... <laughs> Fuck off. I fly from Nevada to the Carolinas, and I get there, and I find out they have the exact same Messiah myth as we do, but they're trying to reach a completely different end. That would be crazy if you went from Nevada to Carolina and they were also Christians. You're deliberately misinterpreting me. Me? Oh my god. All the loyal listeners maybe will support me while I try to... Okay. I have some answers for you. Okay. Space travel is prohibitively expensive. Because it relies on one drug that comes from one One planet. planet. There are thousands and thousands of planets. There is a monopoly on space travel by the guild. So like... Unless you are, like, from a great house or, like, working directly for them, it's never going to happen. Um, also, you'll notice, like, anytime that people have to talk and give a message in Dune, they have to, like, physically go there. So, like, information is not really flowing. Just, like, you can't, like, send a text. Like, someone has to say it. It's not like in Star Wars where they send the little holo- holograms. Yeah, that doesn't really exist. Oh, so, okay. So, like... So the Bene Gesserit can, like, really manipulate them. Because the yeah. little folk are never going to communicate with each other. Yeah, they're never going to know, like, basically anything about any other planet. Like, these are pretty isolated places. Okay. Well, thank you for humoring my bad analogy. You're welcome. <laughs> Okay. Hesitant allies. Thank you to the Bene Gesserit. And then they get taken down into like a mini siege, essentially. Yeah, it's like a hideout, essentially. The siege is like a big community place. But there's a lot of these little hideouts. And Jessica learns more about the prophecy. And they both get fed dinner. And dinner is literally just like... I was kind of picturing, um, you know the, the like, what is it, like the Lambus bread from Lord of the Rings? Oh, yeah, wrapped in the leaf. Wrapped in the leaf. I was picturing more like, um, I don't know if you've ever had, like, the the stuffed grape leaves, uh, like, Mediterranean food. I'm not that brave. Okay. I've never tried that. Well, that's what I figured, is it's just, like, a grape leaf, essentially, and then they had, like, some chicken in it. Uh, not chicken, obviously, but some sort of some sort of bird, and then there's like a ton of spice in it. And Paul's like, "Oh my god, I'm seeing the futures again! Like, I'm gonna be the head of like this horrible like genocide. Like, I can't do anything about it." Paul really has a bad trip. Every time he has spice, it is a bad trip. Yeah, well, he's just having the same nightmare over and over again, and he like knows it's his fault. Um, but like, is it like, is it his fault that his mother chose to have a son by Duke Leto and train him in the Bene Gesserit way? Like, 
I, I'm not saying that Paul is going to come out of this blameless, because he is, like, making political decisions to stay alive that are going to affect, like, tons of people that he is not a leader of. However, Jessica birthed him and raised him, like, against the advice of everyone because she wanted to be the mother of the Messiah. Yeah, this is mostly Jessica's fault. We are allowed to blame women. You said it. Right. <laughs> um, okay. So, Jessica is really just doing more Bene Gesserit manipulation and understanding more about the prophecy that the Fremen have been fed. And, like, every, like, fourth or fifth realization from her, she's like, wow, like, whoever was doing the work on this planet, they fucking killed it. Yeah, like, they were going for extra credit. Yeah. And in this chapter, she's, like, not just understanding the prophecy, but she's, like, confirming parts of it yeah she's like okay i'm gonna take a chance like i'm pretty sure that like based on what they've said here i need to say like this prayer and then she does it and they're like okay we're taking you back uh you're gonna become like our reverend mother and she's like oh my god like that's the name we we call people like in the bene Gesserit. like these people you know ate up <laughs> what the 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 missionera protectiva was was in here doing i mean if you're living on essentially a death planet of course someone is like don't worry times are gonna come a change for you yeah you're like thank god that's just what i needed to hear yeah. yeah okay so the guy that paul pushed down some rocks who gets embarrassed bit of a hothead bit yeah. of a hothead he's like i'm gonna i want to fight paul yeah, and to do that, he's like, I challenge the woman. I challenge Jessica, because in the prophecy, she has to choose a champion. She can't fight herself. So he's like, well, she's going to have to choose Paul, because she doesn't really have anyone else. So he's like, great, here's my opportunity to like take my revenge on this this 15-year-old kid that like embarrassed me. Which, like, Jameis has like an 8-year-old son, and a wife, and a 9-year-old son, and like... He's like, he's like, um, the guys at Summer League who are like pissed they're not as athletic anymore and are like, no, 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 no. Let me, let me prove it to you. Sure. Yeah. And then gets like beat up on by someone 20 years more athletic than them. Anyway. Yeah. It, it's well, Jameis I'm, is like a good fighter though. But first of all that this fight super interesting because paul is so used to fighting someone who has a shield on and he's never killed anyone and he's never killed anyone so the fremen kind of think he's playing with his food a little bit because he is like clearly like it becomes clear about three quarters of the way through the fight that like paul is gonna win and yeah. people think he's like toying with Jameis, but jessica is watching the fight and she's like oh like, he is a little slow because he is not used to fighting without a shield, and he is not used to fighting someone without a shield. Because right. the shield, I don't remember if we talked about this in part one, but it's like a full body thing, and it stops anything that's moving quickly. So, like, a really fast stab is going to be deflected by the shield. Um, so what Paul normally, what he's been trained to do is, like, you kind of play defensively, and you you dodge, and then you, like make kind of a slower uh, attack. Mm. So he's like dodging Jameis in time. He's like never going to get hit by Jameis. He's too fast. He's been trained. 
in like these Bene Gesserit ways of like extreme like muscle like mind muscle connection like hyper awareness yeah um but then you know he he dodges and then he's just a little bit too slow on the attack because he's used to the shield and all the fremen are like why doesn't he just kill him like this is so disrespectful and then paul's like do you yield and they're all like what the fuck man like you gotta kill him and stillgar's like yo guys hold on like he doesn't know the rules like (laughs) paul you gotta kill him man and then paul does it yeah and it's the first life he's ever taken. And and Jessica comes up and is like, yeah, you like killing people, Paul? You like killing people? And he's like, what the fuck, mom? Like, And she's like, in her head, like, I had to do this. I have to make sure that he understands this is wrong. But the way that she does it is she literally walks up and it says that she like puts a bunch of venom in her voice and is like, yeah, you like being a killer? <laughs> is what she does and paul paul like snaps out of it he's like no i don't like it (laughs) um and let's see i put in the outline that we love toxic masculinity because like that is essentially what james is doing yeah but then like paul very not toxic masculinity like names himself the mod dib yeah they're like what do you want your fremen name to be and he's like what's the name of that little that little desert mouse i like the way he hops around he doesn't say that, but, and then Stilgar's like, it's a good name, you know? We like that little mouse, too. <laughs> right on. And I think that it is, like, very, like, it's very Messiah story for the Messiah to, like, name himself Little Mouse. Not to name himself, like, Big Snake. Yeah. Or, What's like, the name of that big word? Yeah. <laughs> or, like, I want to be named the Shy Halud. Yeah. They literally would have been, like. That's so sacred, dude. You can't name yourself the Shyalud. Like, also, I put in the outline that I'm feeling a lot better about Timothy Chalamet being named Paul. Like, being Paul. Being named Paul. Jesus. That is still weird that he's named Paul. It is weird that he's named Paul. Um, I think that Timothy Chalamet looks like a little mouse. Yeah. Well, and also... All the Atreides are kind of described as having like very sharp bird-like yeah. features. Not bird-like, hawk-like features. And I think that that uh, old Timmy C fits that pretty well. Okay, so after this we see Jameis's funeral. And Paul cries. And also they have this like ceremony where everyone is like, I'm a friend of Jameis. I'm taking this from his belongings. Yeah. But, like, they have to pass things along in the desert. There's no Walmart. That's like, so true. There is no Walmart. And, like, they're, everything that they have, they're making yeah. themselves. They can't yeah. just be like, oh, yeah, we'll bury the dead with, like, all of his stuff. Yeah, they don't waste anything. They don't waste anything. They don't even waste the body's water. That's true. When Jessica sees, like, the siege later on, And sees the things that they're manufacturing. Like, she says, essentially, this is not a simple society. They are perfectionists. Yeah. Because everything has to be perfect. Or they die. You know, if your still suit's not working, you just die out in the desert. Um, But Paul gives moisture to the dead. He cries during James's funeral. And everyone is, like, reaching out and touching his face and being like, oh, my God. He gives moisture to the dead. Yeah, because we meet Jameis' wife in the next chapter, and she's like, I can't. 
Like, I'm like not, I don't got it like, like that. Like, I cannot cry for this man. Like, not because I didn't like him or I didn't love him, but, like, I just literally can't do it. Because, you know, the idea of giving water like that is so against just, like, the way they've been brought up and every aspect of their culture. So I think it's really important for them to see Paul and be like, oh, he cares. Yeah. Like, this is a big deal to him. Well, and this is just, like... For the, like, fourth or fifth time in part two, we, like, get an even bigger understanding of, like, what water is to these people. Yeah, because the other part of this chapter is they go down to this, like, huge water reservoir. And they empty um, the water that Jameis was carrying and also the water of that was Jameis. Yeah. And they put it in this big reservoir and they measure it like very precisely. And Stilgar's like, yeah, this is our dream. Like once we have enough water across the planet, like we're going to make this place livable. And like the underlying belief of every Fremen is like this water is sacred. It should not be touched. Like should not be, should not be taken they have like these water markers that show like how much water they own, I guess, or they could go take, but like to take more than that would be essentially unspeakable. I think it is the kind of thing that like would get you killed, but also not just you, like your family. Maybe. Yeah. Like it's, it's the kind deal. of thing that would be like we're so sorry, like blood of my blood get out of the siege. Like yeah, cuz they say, I mean, Stilgar says like People will die of thirst before they think of taking yeah. this water, even if they're there. And then we leave Arrakis. Paul and Jessica don't. Paul we're and Jessica there. don't, but we as the reader leave Arrakis. Yeah. We're back on Harkonnen's planet. Gady Prime. Sure. Gady Prime. G-I-E-D-I. Prime. Um, And we see a big gladiator fight. So we do. Fade Routha has been, like, honing his skills in battle and also, like, I think proving to the Harkonnen, like, populace that he is, like, going to be a strong heir. Yeah. I think the beginning of the chapter says this is, like, his his hundredth... 100th fight. And he's normally fighting drugged slaves. Yeah. Who are drugged to be, like, really terrified and not fight super well. But he's arranged with Thufir who's now working for the Harkonnens uh, to fight an undrugged gladiator. But Fade Rotha has like, you know, he's got some extra poison that he's got on his so- on his sword. Um, and he's got like a, a safe word, essentially, that makes the prisoner like freeze up. It is so insane to me that like, so, like, it seems like it is meant to be sacred that the short white blade is poisoned and the black blade is clean. Yeah. I don't know about sacred, but it's definitely tradition. So, it's kind of crazy to me that Fade Rautha is like, made my little secret poison sword. Made my little secret poison sword. No one knows that I have a little secret poison sword. Mm-hmm. Like, the whole thing with gladiator fights is, like, to a point... They are. They were honorable. Yeah, kind of. These ones really aren't. I mean, Fade Rotha has like 
he's got all these handlers and like essentially rodeo clowns with him who are like will like take the heat off Federatha if it starts getting too bad um but he's like no nah, i don't need him this whole thing is set up by Fedroth by Federatha to like make him more of like a hero to the people can you explain to me how Thufir Hawat was involved in that fight? He made sure that the... I think he, like, helped Fadrotha plan it. And also he made sure that the gladiator was not drugged. But Fadrotha agreed to that. I couldn't figure yeah. out in this gladiator fight if the the fighter from House Atreides was given explicit instruction from Thawat to have an edge to be able to kill Fadrotha, or if Thawat's loyalties as a Mentat have switched entirely to the Harkonnens. Like, I can't tell... I think that's still up in the air. Because it does say... Just tell me! I'm not going to, because I don't remember. God. Um, But it does say that, like, Thufir probably told this gladiator, who used to be an Atreides fighter, that he was going to have a chance to kill a Harkonnen, like a real member of the bloodline. Um, but yeah, this whole thing is just set up so that like Fedrotha can gain a little more influence. Um, it said, you know, after the fight, and he like tells them to not chop the the slain guy's head off. He's like, nah, just like bury him with his knife. Like he earned it. And the people are going nuts. They're like beating their chests. They're like high fiving each other. Um, what else happens here? Oh, this is the Fenring chapter. This yes. was the most annoyed I've ever been with Frank Herbert's writing. Yeah. He makes the Lord Feng Fenring and his wife, who is a hot Bene Gesserit, shocker that a woman high up in in the government married to a high up man would be a Bene Gesserit. I have some questions about this. We'll get there. Um, He goes he's really drawing out his like words he's going like and uh what about the uh but it's not uh it's like the mm, it's like mm, it's it's awful it's awful i was like frank you are not doing anything with this besides pissing me off but then he starts talking one-on-one with baron harkin and he's like the emperor's kind of pissed dude like he's he's so normal yeah so it's just a manipulation tactic. For sure. Annoying. It was annoying. Just say in his <laughs> sent just say in your description of the way that he's speaking that like he likes I, that he's got like a drawl or something. Or like that, that he like sounded kind of oily or it seemed like because he also says it is clear that he is like doing things for emphasis. Okay, then yeah. just like say he's doing it for emphasis. Like don't write it like this chapter was like a full page longer than it needed to be just from all the like weird little stutters that he wrote into the chapter. It sounds like Frank Herbert has drawn a lot of emotional response from you for the way that he's he's written Count Fenring. It pissed me off. Point one to Frank Herbert here. Okay, so Fenring's wife is a Bene Gesserit, and we find this out because she's like, man, it sucks that I'm going to have to sleep with Fadrotha and have his little Harkonnen baby. I'm glad I'm going back to the Emperor's planet with you after this. No, she seems a little psyched about it. She's like, uh, I'm just putting up with it, man. And 
elsewhere in the in the chapter she's like yeah he's like he's a good looking boy like very muscular but like they want control of the Harkonnen bloodline because Jesuit, dude. yes because well and i think the emperor does a little bit too because the fenring fenring says to Harkonnen, well we haven't approved your heir yet no i don't think the emperor knows that much about the, the benedict plan and i'll tell you why there's so each of the chapters is like opened up with a little excerpt from like princess Irulan's writings she's the daughter of the emperor she's also Bene Gesserit. um and she mentions that like so does she did she just go to finishing school she just went to finishing Bene Gesserit school like how can she be the emperor's child and also Bene Gesserit? because she went to school she went to Bene Gesserit school but like actually she's not a reverend mother but she's Bene Gesserit, so she knows the plans. So it's like any wealthy woman Bene Gesserit? I'm no, so sorry. No, this... you have to go to school for it. They pick people out. And then essentially, like, do they trust that their conditioning will never be broken? Because, like, Dr. Yue's yeah. conditioning wasn't supposed to be breakable. And Lady Jessica has Paul. Yeah. She's and how kind don't of an the exception. men find out? So I'm going to get to what I'm saying, which is that the Bene Gesserit planned for the current emperor shaddam the fourth or fifth i think to never have any sons because his consort uh is bene Gesserit also she's like i'm only having daughters and so the idea is from what i've been able to piece together i don't know if this is actually confirmed anywhere but so the emperor is not going to have any daughters or not going to have any sons so the throne is left open Jessica was supposed to have a daughter. And the idea is that the Kwisatz, Kwisatz Haderach, which is what the Bene Gesserit are looking to produce, that's like their end goal, is really, really close. And they need to kind of like refine these Harkonnen into Trades genes. So that's why like Jessica is Harkonnen, comes over, has a child with an Atreides. And then I think think the plan was to have Fade Rotha and some Bene Gesserit have like a son or just have Fade Rotha and Jessica's daughter have a kid oh. and then that is probably where the Kwisatz Haderach is. They just needed to refine these bloodlines a little bit. Too bad! Uh, as far as like high up women being Bene Gesserit I mean, yeah, they just have like so much political influence that I think they're able to, to like, take these women to school from these great houses, and to be able to say like, uh, "Oh, you are of a great house. Like, you should have this Bene Gesserit with you. Like, you know, I think like you should have this Mentat with you. You should have this Bene Gesserit." Yeah. That's but the sort of men thing. are generally fairly distrustful of the Bene Gesserit. They are yeah, really yeah. always being like, those witches. So it's crazy that they have all that influence. Men really can't do anything about wanting pussy. Yeah. Like, that's kind of... The Bene Gesserit are, like, really good at seducing. That's the other thing. But Frank Herbert doesn't say that. Frank Herbert doesn't really talk about sex that much. No. They just... So, look, suffice to say, Bene Gesserit have a ton of influence. They are, like, probably the most powerful group in the universe at this point. Um, 
And yeah, there's a lot of Bene Gesserit in the story because they're the women with agency. Oh, that's fair. Okay, we've talked enough about women. Stilgar's troop gets to the big siege. And Paul gets there, and they're immediately like, here's Jameis's wife. Yeah. Do you accept her as woman or servant? And he's like, uh, can I change my mind? And they're <laughs> like, you gotta have her for at least a year. And he's like, fine, servant. And she's like, but I'm young! Yeah. I'm young! Let me be a wife. And I think the understanding there is like, she doesn't want to be dumped on her own after a year. Uh, but Paul is then like, look, as long as I'm alive, like, you'll be taken care of. But you're not my wife. And he's also like, I'm 15. Yeah. I'm 15. He's so much older than 15 now, though. Like, not physically. Oh. But, like, okay. he has seen the future. Heard. Um, I think we learn a lot about the Fremen in this chapter also. Like, just in terms of, like, the woman that becomes his servant is like, oh, yeah, I work in manufacturing. If there's something in your- wrong with your still suit, you let me know. Like, yeah. I'm good at it. Yep. Like. We learn a lot more about, like, what's going on there. Also, like, packing everything up. They're basically like, this siege is finished. They have to leave. There's we have be to a go. Pogrom. Yeah. Um, the Sardaukar are coming, and they did not like being beat by the Fremen the first time. So they're coming to just kill, kill every Fremen on the planet. Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so they're getting ready to leave and move into the deeper desert. Um, And that's basically all we need to know in that chapter, because yeah. then we move... Spice. Orgy. Which... Spoiler alert, we don't see an orgy. No one even kisses. From what I remember reading through the series the first time, they have sex. There's sex involved. Yeah, but like... Frank Herbert just doesn't want to tell us about it. I'm pretty sure that Chani and Paul have sex at the end of this chapter. It's just kind of like, it's not explicit. It's barely implicit, Sam. Well, we'll find out. All right. That's anyway. what you do at the, at the Spice Orgy. You have sex. Heard. But also, okay, we need to actually talk about what the Spice <laughs> Orgy is. My bad. Uh, so Jessica's there. I'm going to try to go fast. Uh, she meets the old Reverend Mother, who's like, Jessica, you got to drink some of this water of life, which they reveal is a liquid secreted by a worm that has been drowned. So they captured a worm. Not a real big one. They drowned it. They get this liquid from it, which is essentially like spice concentrate. But it's also poison. So Jessica drinks some of it. She alters the molecules inside of it because she's a Bene Gesserit and has essentially magical powers. And then she like makes a catalyst within her body that neutralizes the poison, spits it back out into the spice water, the water of life. It neutralizes the poison. So now she's a reverend mother. Oh, also the old reverend mother gave Jessica all of her memories and that's been chained back many reverend mothers back. So Jessica has the memories of like several reverend mothers going way back. And so does her fetus. Yeah, that's just going to get crazy. In later books? In this book. Because the reverend mother's like, oh my god, you should have told us you're pregnant. What the fuck have we done? (laughs) Like it... You, uh, you're not supposed to do that. Uh, anyways, so Jessica does that. Paul drinks 
all of the other Fremen drink, it like m- merges their consciousnesses, consciousnesses together. Conscious eye. Consciousnesses <laughs> uh, together, but like a little bit. Paul's like, oh, like they have a little bit of like prescient ability, but it terrifies them, so they just kind of don't pay attention. And I uh, pretend I do not see it. Exactly, it is not there. So, uh, that's like why they have the spice orgy is because like the like the consciousness of the siege becomes like a pseudo hive mind. Paul, who is very spice, uh, homie is sensitive to it. Spice sensitive, yeah, has just had the most potent concentrated spice essence in existence, and is losing his fucking mind about it. <laughs> he is like basically losing track of what the present is because he's like so buried into the past and future and um chani uh the girl who has been kind of charged with keeping track of paul by the fremen zendaya yeah she takes him in further into the siege uh because like he is amplifying the prescient abilities of the fremen in the siege because like they can kind of feel what he's feeling and his prescient abilities are so strong that they're all getting a taste of it and it's kind of scaring them. She's like, why don't you come over here? But so she's like, I'm scared of like, I can see myself through your eyes. Like Paul's like, I know you. Like I've seen this entire lifetime with you, you know, within the siege, like me comforting your fears, whatever. And he starts crying and uh, she's like, it's okay. Uh, And then they like essentially pledge themselves to each other. to each other because they've like seen this lifetime of partnership through the spice and Paul's prescient visions. So I got all of the like pledging. I understood Jesse becoming the Reverend, Reverend Mother, but like I didn't get any of the molecular molecular poison stuff. I understood that like something was going on with a liquid yeah and that it was important but like all of the things you just explained to me i would have had to read the chapter like three more times it's incredibly dense it is like probably the longest chapter in part two yeah it's like 25 or 30 pages um yeah of jessica having a trip and then paul having a trip and like it's a very also internal chapter. Yeah. Like Jessica will be like, I am experiencing these memories. And also I did this thing with the poison in my body. And now I'm experiencing more memories. It's just like yeah. layer after layer after layer of something happening. And she's like comforting her fetus, but she can't do it with words. She has to do it with feelings. I feel so sorry for that baby. I'm worried about that baby. The baby is kind of mentioned in part one in one of princess Irulan's little excerpts the name is mentioned you know that i did not read that closely this was before you started reading the intros to the chapters i told you i was skimming them i didn't just ignore them completely okay i was having a little looky okay i'm seeing if you had any more questions here uh do you do you have more questions? What happens when a big worm dies? Um 
So they talk about it in part one. I think like Kynes is talking to the Duke about it. Mm-hmm. And he's like, the only way to kill a worm is by like blowing up each segment individually. Oh, kind of like how in a regular worm you can rip it in half and then you just have two worms. I think so. I think it's just like, it's a very durable creature. Mm-hmm. Um, but Kynes also knows that you can drown a worm. But that it's like a sacred act. So well, he wasn't going to tell the Duke. And there's it. not enough water on the planet to drown one of the big worms. No, they 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 drown small worms. In um, the water of life. I must say something. One time, my cousins were watching the old Dune movie when they were up at the farm, and then they were making Dune jokes all week. And since then, I have been vaguely visually. Mixing up old Dune and the human centipede. Oh God! Because the worms. Have you seen it? No, you haven't seen it. The worms, I think, in the original Dune movie, are like deeply fucked up. Probably, I haven't seen it. We should, we should watch it. Okay, we'll we'll watch the original Dune and get back to you guys. Okay, next week we're reading Dune Part Three. You guys can come back and listen to another like hour and a half long it'll probably be longer than than this one or the last one oh my god there's a lot happening how dense is it it's pretty it's about as dense as the other parts okay we we also get to talk about the book as a whole or maybe we save that for comp con i think we save that for comp con okay fear is the mind killer we'll see you next week Listen to all my friends who are English majors. Follow us on Instagram at English Majors Pod. Send us an email at EnglishMajorsPod at gmail.com. Sam will be back next week. Okay. Are you going to say bye? Bye-bye.